Hey everyone, welcome to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. My name is Ali Capurro, and I'm so glad you're here. The Sneaky Powerful Podcast talks about stress and trauma and other details of the human experience. It may not be suitable for all ears, so please be aware of that and take care of yourself and any listeners around you. Today's interview is with my friend Cassandra Rustfold. Cassandra is an amazing, brilliant, and creative human that has so much enthusiasm for her work. It was inspiring to talk with her. She is a sex therapist as well as an SEP, and I appreciated the way she brought such tenderness and compassion to sensitive topics. I'm really excited for you to hear what she shares and get to know her a little bit better. Here's Cassandra's bio. She's a licensed clinical social worker, an AASECT certified sex therapist, and a somatic experiencing practitioner. Cassandra has worked in a number of residential, outpatient, and transitional programs, and currently has a private practice on the native lands of the Shoshone and Bannock tribes, or Boise, Idaho. One of her main areas of expertise lies in working with men who struggle with out-of-control sexual behavior, sometimes commonly referred to as sex addiction. She also teaches sex and sexuality-based courses for graduate students and is joining the revolution of psychedelics in their role in individual and collective healing. Cassandra has a strong belief that healing is something within each and every one of us and that her role as a therapist and somatic practitioner is to help her clients reconnect with that which is already theirs. I love that. (laughs) So let's get to the interview. Hey, Cassandra. Welcome to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. Good to see you. (laughs) And to be with you, Allie. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, this is going to be good. It's kind of funny because I know a little of your story already, but obviously the audience doesn't. So let's tell me about how you got to SE, if you're willing, a little bit of your journey to SE, and then a little bit of what else you do, if you are good with that. Absolutely. So my journey to SE, um, I actually, SE found me, as I think it does a lot of other people. I had just gotten out of grad school and um, accepted a job at a big treatment facility in Arizona. And this particular facility has a number of what they call senior fellows. So, you know, therapists and neurobiologists and other folks who are kind of at the top of their game in mental health and trauma treatment. And Pierre Levine is one of those senior fellows. So this facility really embraced somatic experiencing. And, you know, the facility I was working at was uh, for just entirely focused on helping cisgendered men struggling with what they called sex addiction. And my first role at that facility was as a primary therapist, uh, running group therapy and individual sessions, um, but mostly focused around very cognitive top-down approaches, general Mm -hmm. talk therapy. Mm -hmm. And a position opened up for a trauma therapist and, um, I applied and got moved into that. So um, they wanted me to do training in SE. And I was like, 
okay, I don't know what this is, but <laughs> I had a mentor there who um, had was um, on fire with the SE passion and allowed me to sit in with him in a number of sessions he was doing um, with some of the men that we worked with. And it was very apparent to me right at the beginning and being able to sit in those sessions that something really sneaky powerful was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't know what it was. I could feel it. I could see how it made big shifts in these individuals' presentation and in their lives. But to be quite honest, I was a little bored when I would sit in those sessions. Like watching paint dry. Yeah, I'm like, what? Like, come on, like, let's move this. Like, (laughs) you know, really being kind of a little bit more obsessed as I had been trained with thought based processing. And so, yeah, I was intrigued, but I wasn't really sure what what, what this was all about. And, but I'm like, well, this facility's paying for me to go to this training, you know, I'll show up. And it wasn't until I started doing my own work and feeling it from the inside out that I started to really get it and had a recognition that this was this was something that was really where I needed to go with my with my profession and my personal healing. Absolutely. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that, my journey towards SE is that I credit SE with being the reason that I'm still a therapist. Had I not found it, I would have burnt out a lot faster. And it just resonated and felt coherent and congruent with with what I believe about how healing actually works. I love that you recognize that and then share that because I immediately I resonated with, yeah, I think the things that in my life, including being a therapist, I credit SE for the ability to continue to move forward when I there were a lot of opportunities to stay stuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good. I appreciate that. You said something within that that I wanted to get clarification about, especially for our listeners, but me included. You said what they call sex addicted behaviors or something like that. And could you could you offer maybe some information about some of the titles or acronyms that we're going to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. I think it might necessitate me taking on a little journey of my understanding of them, if that would be. I would love that because I would like some, yeah, this is my chance to learn. So absolutely. Great. So I attended, my graduate training was in a sex therapy focused program. And I went into that with a lot of fervor around sex positivity and sexual liberation and which I still hold those things um, very sacredly. But at the same time in my training, I recognized that there was a, a large gap which was that there were, weren't really any courses offered or any focus on on kind of the shadow side of sexuality and and the harms that can come of it, um, both those that one experiences ind- independently and, and one that are experienced as a result of somebody else's sexuality. So within my my early years as learning how to become a therapist, I, I sought out internships and other training with with looking at like kind of this umbrella term of problematic sexual behavior. Got it. And and so underneath that umbrella, I should say, of problematic sexual behavior, I would I would hang a number of things. I would hang sexual offending behavior 
or boundary violating behavior. Another vein of that is sex addiction. Somebody who who has an actual process addiction connected to sex and sexuality and the chemical releases therein that happen in their brain when they're having sexual experiences or anticipating them. And then another model that I've really found a lot of, again, congruency with for myself as a professional, which is out of control sexual behavior. Um, and, and so that is uh, something, you know, some people might utilize the term compulsive sexual behavior, um, but essentially what it means is anything that's outside of one's values set um, could be deemed out of control sexual behavior. Yeah. So, so is that, is that helpful? Super, super helpful. I okay. almost want to know. So are we all, I think sex offending, we know that the addiction, as far as the chemical releases that kind of feels clear. How about, I mean, I don't know. I imagine in therapy, it gets kind of maybe gray when the out of control or compulsive sexual behavior, because I'm thinking when someone someone's values get shifted a little to fit their out of control behavior. Like, Oh, maybe this is okay. So I guess I was, maybe if you had an example of that to make kind of anchor it or feel more concrete for me, that would be helpful. If you have an example. Absolutely. So let's see if I'm answering your question correctly. Sure. I would like to just state that there's a lot of, whether we want to believe it or not in 2022, there's still a lot of sexual shame and collective discomfort with dialoguing about sex and sexuality. And um, there's also the the other side of that pendulum, which is a lot of overexposure and easy access to sexual imagery, um, which I choose to use that term um, in lieu of pornography because it's more clear on what it is and one of my my mentors Doug Brunt Harvey um, really encourages me to use that as well mm-hmm. um, but so as far as there being conflicts uh, internal conflicts so somebody you know thinking of an individual I work with who views sexual imagery a number of times a week but does not but that's not in alignment with his religious values so he, he for him it feels out of control Sure. Right? And I don't get to be the one who tells him about his values and how to shift that, but I get to help hold space for him around that internal conflict, this erotic conflict and conflict around his values. Does that answer it's, your question? Absolutely. And I think that was actually such a great example because I think that um, for people to hear just actually your role feels kind of really sacred because like you said it's not the judgment it's just holding the space to help the person align feel congruency within and I appreciate that shift right that I heard right there so yes that feels really clear and really helpful yeah so I I guess I'm kind of tempted to just kind of go into that what we kind of talked about in the pre-call as far as somatic experiencing and the weaving together of your other specialty of being uh, and do you actually call yourself a certified sex sexual addictions therapist or do you prefer a different i know that's your certification but i was wondering if there's a different way you describe yourself 
So I want to make another distinction here that I think is really important and I appreciate the question and the clarity. There is oftentimes some confusion around if somebody says I'm a sex therapist or a sex addiction therapist. Yes. They're two very different things. I have been trained and certified in both, but I, I don't utilize that title anymore of certified sex addiction therapist. I do weave in still some of the things I learned in that training. Um, but uh, so certified sex addiction therapist is a one year long training and it's all focused around addiction around sexuality. Personally, I find it to be a very narrow understanding of sex and sexuality. So I identify more with being a ASEC certified sex therapist, which you know was about a 10 year long process of education and, and consultation and doing a lot of uh, work around understanding all the complexities of sex and sexuality, which I still feel like I only have the smallest grasp of because it's so complex. And um, yeah, so that is the title that I align more with. I That's really helpful. And can I ask a question? Because I think previously I would have thought of a certified sex therapist as working with couples and how to, you know, something really stereotypy. <laughs> so maybe if you want to elaborate a little bit more about yeah. kind of the, what you work with. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of my training did include doing um, couples focused sex therapy, help, you know, couples that have different arousal templates, um, different desires. Uh, I don't, like to work with couples out that all that much. I'm just it's not it's not my strong point, um, but I have. But a, a certified sex therapist is trained in not only couples work but also working with people who are interested or are already in polyamorous relationships or um, who or other forms of uh, consensual non-monogamy. They might also work with issues around difficulty with erections or with vaginal lubrication, uh, with changes of life, reconciling my sexuality as a young person with my sexuality as a six-year-old. They also, you know, have the capacity to work around orientation, sexual orientation, uh, confusion, gender orientation, and um, identity, uh, gender presentation, expression, and a whole host of other um, identities. But um, my focus is, is I've just really honed in and focused on working with the problematic sexual behavior. Yeah, you would. I, that makes sense now. 10 years, first of all, <laughs> the length of time and the huge clientele, like who you're going to see, that would make sense to hone in on something that, gosh, 10 years. I mean, it makes sense, but I'm like, yeah. I'm sure people could have got it done faster than I did, but. <laughs> you know, just like with somatic experiencing though, it's that living it, using it in your practice, learning and weaving together over time. It just, yeah, to have a really thorough and healthy understanding of it all. I value that in you, my friend. Um, so. I feel clear. I think we've got a lot of clarity going. So let's now let's do that. So the somatic experiencing part and being a certified sex therapist. So again, I work largely with male identified or cisgendered men. And one of the things that is, is really key in, in that work is, well, let me just back up. 
I want to name some kind of general SE principles that come into the work with these men often, and then maybe I can unpack them a little bit more. Self-regulation, co-regulation, embodiment in general, unpacking uh, and uncoupling sexual over-sexualized, over-sexualizing touch, understanding embodied consent and not just verbal consent. And, um, and I think the last piece, I mean, there's a whole host of other things, but the last piece would be emotional awareness. A lot of the men I work with have, have minimal to no understanding of what it means to be an emotional being. And one thing that I think SE, one gift SE has given the men I work with and myself is that, you know, as much as uh, things are changing, uh, our society and culture still raises men to not to prioritize being emotional. So if a man comes into my office and I and I invite him to sense what he's feeling, that can be like saying, well, can you get on a bike and ride that bike when nobody's taught you how to ride the bike? Why aren't you riding the bike? Why can't you tell me why you're riding the bike? Does that make sense? Like, uh, oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so in SE, this embodiment piece is, is really big because I can think of, so you, you might think that men who are hypersexual are very in touch with their bodies. Right. I think that's a great myth to dispel. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's often the case that they're unable to feel inside uh, unless there's a lot of intensity or, or a catharsis, i.e. a climax happening. And so bringing in a lot of just basic embodiment um, and helping them to understand uh, embodied sense of self versus conceptual self. And what I mean by that is there is when I say, who are you? And they say, well, I'm a father and I'm and my name is this and this is the career I work at. Yada, yada, yada. Those are concepts, mental concepts. But feeling into who I am in my body is something that's often not accessible to them. And so when they can become more equipped to notice uh, when there's these kind of nascent or early impulses in their body that are happening. It can be a really pivotal key for them to, um, to prevent them from engaging in this, in this out of control sexual behavior that they're having so much conflict and pain around. If you could think of... Um... An example to kind of characterize what what I, I guess where I went in my mind with it as I was listening was I was thinking yeah what's the buy-in or the why like why what's the point of knowing <laughs> who I am I mean for us for like a therapist like I know like that's my goal in life you know is to better understand myself mm-hmm. and the why mm-hmm. but I'm thinking how do those link together like if I can feel the beginning of my impulses, what's that going to help if I know that? Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, I think of a number of men who come into my office, either for group therapy or individual. And, and um, one of the things that one of the agreements they make when they do this work is that they are going to come in and speak about when they've crossed a boundary of their own, which is yeah. just maybe to say uh, an individual like I spoke about before who doesn't feel good about the fact that he's viewing sexual imagery. So if he, do, if he views it, he makes an agreement to himself that he's going to come and name that in the next group or in the next individual session. So it doesn't remain a secret and continue to hold power over him. 
So some of the buy-in around being embodied is if this individual comes into group and says, uh, I crossed my boundary this last week. And, you know, I say, are you open to some questions or some feedback from your group members about that? And he starts getting asked, well, what did you, what was happening beforehand that was going on for you? And he's like, well, I don't know. I was just, well, it was kind of a stressful day, but I don't know. Everything seemed fine. And then I just got online. But if he has experience and the capacity to feel into his his body and his sense of embodied self, then he might know at noon, oh, there's there's something unsettled happening yes. inside of me. And and maybe I maybe I need to tune into that. And oh, and if I do tune in that to that, maybe there's an opportunity there to find some ability to reach out to someone or to do some other sort of um, self-soothing approach that is going to be a lot more available to impede the the forward movement towards crossing his boundaries than if that has that little rumbling of discomfort is now at a 10 and I'm about to get online. Bingo. That was exactly what I was looking for. And I'm so excited because now <laughs> I know, took I, out the answer you wanted. <laughs> well, I like this. It just helps my conceptualization and go, okay, that makes so much sense to me. And to be able to explain to people or talk with people about it. But also, does there tend to be a commonality that you see when you say, if I have better awareness, I might tune in earlier to, oh, I'm a little unsettled. And then, you know, I don't know how many hours or minutes that precedes the viewing of sexual imagery possibly, but, or going against their own boundary. But is there a common experience, like, like before someone, if I'm sober and I'm, I'm, you know, in recovery for drinking, what's going to be the thing? What are the things that are my triggers to drink? And is it loneliness? Is it, and, and I was wondering those, what are those triggers or that unsettledness? Are there any commonalities or common themes that the people that you're working with are feeling before the sexual behavior? Is it sexual at all? Or is it not sexual at all? But that's how it's connected or linked in their wiring. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you used the term, are there any commonalities? Because I would say, obviously, there's no one answer to that question because everybody's an individual. But I would say a, a large number of folks who struggle in this area, who have been raised and socialized as men, they unfortunately have this this belief system that's been handed to them that they have to do everything on their own. And that they have to manage things on their own. And so I think of of this sense of like when there's loneliness or there's overwhelm in lieu of connecting um, in a real way with another individual, it's like a a faux connection um, that they're they're seeking. And so to just to add on to that piece, you know, I would like to bring in the, the notion of like self-regulation and co-regulation and you know another commonality is most of these men don't have they've never been taught whether it was because they didn't have a you know competent caregiver or because they were socialized as men the ability to self-soothe wasn't modeled or given to them early Um, 
And then the notion of reaching out and asking for more support and connection has felt like something unavailable. So a lot of the work that we do together is about learning how to oftentimes first co-regulate. And so that's why group therapy is, is so huge because they're coming in and, and allowing others to feel with them and to feel with others and to have that support. And again, you know, I'm always there to help support it becoming more embodied than just conceptual in the room. Absolutely. That's actually so beautiful because I don't know if this fits exactly, but what what occurred to me was this tendency or this conditioning to um, suppose if it's sexual imagery, that's the faux part of the connection. But even if it's disembodied sexual activity, it makes me think of that like this is <laughs> this is the only way I'm allowed to connect mm-hmm. is yeah. to have sex with someone basically. Yeah. 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 And I love that you said that because one of the the things that I'm sure my guys get sick of hearing me say is that OCSB, which is you know an acronym for out of control sexual behavior or sex addiction or whatever, I just I allow my guys to identify with what terms fit for them, but it's not really, it hardly ever is it about sex. More often than not, it's about intimacy deficits. And that that can be an inability to be fully intimate with oneself, meaning I, coming back to the embodied piece, like I'm really connected to what's happening for me on a sensate level and an emotional level. And, and also how does it, I mean, to be intimately connected to another person, you know, to use, well, I won't quote another therapist, another therapist term like that, <laughs> that, that, that desire to be intimate and close is oftentimes our greatest need and our largest fear. And that, that often I, I see that being very true for, for these men. And that connects for me, the co-regulating initial piece that happens I think you said kind of first often. Yeah. And if I could, I want to come back around because I think initially when I was talking about embodiment, um, I made reference to emotional awareness and sometimes how it's it's unfair to say, what are you feeling right now to some of these guys? Because they can spat out a word, but do they yeah. actually know how it feels to connect? But if I, if I say, you know what, let's just like leave the whole notion of emotions on the side for now and just... What, what sensations do you feel in your body? Um, because not always, but often sensations are, you know, the, the precursor or our first emotional language. And so they can feel more competent and empowered to notice those things and start to bring that back online. And then later down the road, we can, we can put some verbal vocabulary to what emotions that might be. Absolutely. Connecting those two, that makes, that's so helpful. Yeah, I'm in love with this um, topic right now and seeing the the desperate need we have for this knowledge to permeate through society much more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Preach. Yeah, so what comes to mind for what you'd want to share next? There's a couple options in my mind. One of them even being like kind of what you do with your, in your groups or what it might look like over time to work with someone, but really anything that feels kind of on your heart that 
is really important to get out there. I really want to speak to consent. Oh, and yes. um, and consent through an SE lens. And I think that might dovetail into touch work, somatic experiencing touch work as well with this population, which I just want to name out the gates was something I was very trepidatious about for a long time, especially as a woman working with men. So the model I use out of control sexual behavior, it's really based off the foundation of the World Health Organization's sexual health principles. So that's kind of one of our guiding lights. And, and so those are honesty, shared values, non-exploitation, consent, prevention from unwanted pregnancies and STIs, and, and pleasure. So we don't negate or ignore the fact that pleasure is, is one of our sexual health rights as humans, but we hold it equally with all those other pieces. So consent, oftentimes I see that men have a... I don't want to just say men, I'd say women as well, but have a narrow understanding of what consent is. And so I'm weaving consent in all throughout sessions, group and individual. You know, one of the things that we learn in SE training is something as simple as when somebody comes in asking how the proximity feels with our chairs and how close we are and would they like to change that at all? And how do they know that that does feel or doesn't feel good in their body? And generally, um, I'm getting a response of, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine how you are. Um, but I'm really inviting that. I'm speaking to consent in a way uh, there. And I'm saying, I want to really encourage you to notice how you know it feels like a yes or a no yeah. in your body. And so learning consent for them first, and then later, you know, helping to, to bridge that gap with regards to consent for with other people sexually. Yeah. And so then, you know, with regards to touch work, which isn't something I do with all clients, but a number of the folks I work with had a neglectful childhood or an abusive childhood. And now their only real way uh, of accessing touch that feels good is in a sexual way. General, and this is a vast generalization, but so um, for some of those folks, we do move towards doing uh, integrating non-sexual touch. And it's been really moving as I've been able to work through some of my trepidation and discomfort with, oh my gosh, how I'm going to touch this man who's, who hypersexualizes women. Like, whoa, like what's that, what's going to come up with, you know, within me as I've been able to kind of digest and integrate some of, some of that stuff. It's been really pivotal um, for these guys and, and, and helping them to notice for themselves that, you know, if, if you know, if I move forward and, and say, okay, you know, explaining consent and letting them know that it can change at any moment's notice, but also, and even more importantly, that consent isn't just something that comes from your brain, your thinking mind, I should say. So, you know, first I will ask, is it okay for me to make contact with your wrist? And their immediate answer might be, yeah, that's fine. And then I'll say, okay, now I really want to invite you to imagine that there is contact being made with your wrist. And then notice what the body says. And notice if, if, if it's also a yes, if it's a no, if it's a maybe, if it's an unsure, and how do you notice that? And what I've found to be really impactful for these guys is that 
through the experience of their own bodies, they can they can start to come into some more awareness of, wow, there wasn't consent on board from this other partner. They might have said verbally, but they, you know, they start to understand like there was a power dynamic. And so maybe the person said yes because they felt like they had to, but her body was rigid or what these other pieces start to flood in as they have their own lived experience in their body, what a no feels like. Absolutely. It's such a it moving, it's moving me personally right now just to think about I have two daughters and to think teaching them about consent and knowing what their body says. Yes, no, maybe, unsure. Mm-hmm. And just what a gift that is to humans to know that our bodies can have consent as well as our minds and, and maybe even tell us something truer than our minds, than our prefrontal cortexes, cortices. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I like that. uh, Imagining that even walking us through with the wrist example, just something as simple as can I touch your wrist? Yeah. And I want to add another piece there. It's something that I've, I've been witness to a number of times is that, you know, after consent is, we've established consent and and contact is say made with that wrist and there can be an uptick in where they'll say oh i I just noticed myself going into fantasy sexual fantasy or uh, starting to have some arousal and then as we you know name that and allow it to be there and sit with it quite often what's underneath all that or uncoupled Uh (laughs) there is either a deep longing that's that's with a deep sadness or something that 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 arousal has been covering or taking care of keeping down yeah the tenderness of that and the understanding is how i see it is the way that will actually heal some of the um really painful sexual experiences shall i say most of us have encountered feels fair and accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Consent. Wow. Love it. Deep pause. So uh, let's do, since I'm looking at our time and I mm-hmm. am already immediately aware that we're going to have to do more of these. <laughs> it's like going to be a series (laughs) with our schedules that's going to be tough I recognize but any magic moments and by magic you know it's not it's something that was really um moving spiritual really anything but standout moments highlights the highlight reel (laughs) Mm. there's so many Allie. Um, I know that's why we're doing a series. <laughs> the sex series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because nothing is really popping in relation to this this line that we're we're on with with out of control sexual behavior. Um no, that's not true. Well, there there's a there's a an olden goodie, I guess. One of my first Within the first year of training with SE, I was still working in that facility for men with sex addiction. And 
had had a client there that was very special to me and I think the whole staff, our whole team at the time, but this individual had been in and out of addiction treatment um, for substances and he had OD'd on heroin and he had struggled with alcohol and, and then he was struggling with utilizing sex to medicate his emotions and um, had done all the talk therapy work that there was to do and was continuing to do that. But still there was there was this dis-ease inside and this inability to name what that was. And um, we had a series of SE sessions, but one that, that were all very spiritual and impactful, but one that stands out is we're dialoguing and as we're trained in SE, I'm noticing very subtle, almost uh, indistinguishable or unnoticeable body movements. And I noticed that there's his left shoulder keeps trying to talk to us. <laughs> it's doing a little tiny, tiny twitch. And so I pause him and I and I ask permission for us to come back to the story and the dialogue and to listen to what the narrative is in this shoulder that's that's um, twitching. And it's switching in a forward motion and and we're just noticing in he has a lot of capacity to track in his body and um, inviting him to notice if, if that small movement had the ability to do a, a full expression of what it wanted how that would feel or what that would look like and pretty uh organically and and quickly his his arm his shoulder is wanting to move his arm up and over his head to cover his face and his head and so we slow that motion down and, and he feels into it and an eruption of fear and sadness along with imagery of being a young boy who got lost in a parking lot at a grocery store. When his mother finds him, she was physically abusive to him and she began to beat him for getting lost. I'm becoming teary just thinking about this story. Yeah. Even when visited a lot of times, and he wanted to protect himself from her hit. Mm-hmm. He wanted to put his arm up to cover his, you know, the thrashing. But he knew that that would just result in an in, in increase in her rage, and so he didn't. But this this impulse in his his body was still there, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know, it's not the end of his healing journey, but it was a big piece uh, having that memory arise to consciousness uh, and allowing that to be a, a moment of, of integrating and letting go of some of the grief and fear Absolutely. that he was carrying. That's a, I love that story. Thanks for sharing. Oh man. And the, I, I love just the freedom to let at least that piece move through and move out. Mm-hmm. That's magic. That's why we love this. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you're so busy and so full and doing such great work. That was something that occurred to me also, because I know that your practice can't even take any more new cl- or new clients. And this is such a useful way to provide at least a little bit of beautiful information and wisdom to, to all of us listening. Anything else 
to wrap up, some things I like to do are things that are like, you know, stolen from other podcasts. Like, what are you doing now? What's inspiring you now? Uh, what are you watching, listening to, or anything you want to share? I'm so glad we're doing the um, assisting together. That's been a game changer to at least see you and spend time with you. I'm like, thank goodness for that. That came up for me just now. But yeah, yeah. Anything that comes to mind in this beautiful moment? Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm always reading like 10 books, (laughs) but, um, you know, one that I'm reading that I think relates to this topic is called passion and presence. Mm. And it is written by a woman who's a Hakomi practitioner, which is not Essie, but it's, it's like Essie's brother. Right. You know, and, um, she's also an ASEC certified sex therapist. And so she, I love that it's not focused on out of control sexual behavior, but it is, it's, it um, helps bridge the, you know, the embodiment work with, with sexuality. So I'm really loving that. But to be quite honest, most of the time lately, I'm trying not to read therapy books because I spent way too many years (laughs) reading a bunch of therapy books. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Balance. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So anything fun? I know your partner's an amazing artist um Mm. do you create art and like with him or are you do you like art I know you're a really talented doodler oh my gosh um (laughs) I know there's an artist in here somewhere I just have to create enough space outside of my profession (laughs) to do that but yeah right yeah I'm aspiring poet and uh writer but I need to carve out more time. <laughs> uh, I just love beautifying spaces, to be honest. That's what my other new passion, just creating beautiful spaces around me internally and externally with the work that we do and all the the things that we carry that are heavy and, um, mm. and challenging. It, it, it's, it's my way of pendulating to, yeah. to be surrounded by beauty. Yeah. So um, um, that's my goal in every day is to look for beauty around me yeah I always find it (laughs) it's always there consistency in that whether we see it or not is one thing but it's always there yeah do you watch are you binge watching anything do you do you watch things on don't I don't watch a lot of tv do you want to know what I'm watching in relationship to this topic or anything anything Okay. I'm so well, one curious. of my clients turned me on to <laughs> this new show called Our Flag Means Death. It's ridiculous. And it's about like this very posh Victorian man who, who wants to, aspires to be a pirate. Um, and so he becomes a captain, but he is just so tender and thoughtful of all of his crew members and I love it because it really shows like a lot of gender expression diversity and so there's a a strong queer focus and it's just playful and fun too so I've been watching that but yeah generally I'm I'm, I don't like to watch more humans after sitting with humans all day no offense against humans but if I'm gonna watch something more likely I want to watch a nature show yeah (laughs) Oh, you had mentioned that the national parks, huh? You had mentioned that. Yeah, right, right. Hiking, is that a big way you um, regulate? 
I feel like yeah. I've heard you talk about being outside. Yeah. Specifically hiking, backpacking. Hiking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You do have a lot of balance. How about favorite song? Any favorite songs lately? I like the idea. I think Brene Brown's Unlocking Us podcast does. Uh, I, I just listened to um, Viola Davis yesterday on Brene's um, podcast and it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. And, and so she'll send out maybe ahead of time, like a, she did this thing where she said, send me five, maybe your five top favorite songs. And um, then she had Viola Davis during the, at the end of the podcast say, in one sentence, something like, in one sentence, what does this say about you, basically? And I was like, oh, I love that. <laughs> I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> but I do think like what we're listening to or reading, I think it, it is communicates something about our hearts. And so I was thinking, yeah, are you listening to anything that I should know about? <laughs> so I could <laughs> listen to it too. <laughs> yes, a song actually that was played on the break of one of our SE trainings this last weekend. I've listened to it a number of times and sent to a few of my clients who some of their stories are interweaved and in what we've talked about today. It's by Trevor Hall. You can't rush your healing. Oh, okay. I've got it written down. That And then I, if I had to say, and this goes out to some of my, my girlfriends, that we've listened to the song over and over and over. I think this song speaks to everything we need to know about this life <laughs> in a way. The title of the song is I Am by Satsang. Satsang? Mm-hmm. Yeah, S-A-T-S-A-N-G. I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Those lyrics, like he, he's got it. He nailed it. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Now I have something to do. <laughs> and the other thing I'm reading as of late is awakening shakti yes my uh, my colleague has lent me that book recently mm-hmm. and there's some good stuff in this world <laughs> some days it's hard to find <laughs> but like, yeah. like we said it's always there yeah. um okay well thank you so 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 much for being on here this was a delight and you're welcome back anytime as a matter of fact i think we're gonna have to plan our next one in like two minutes I'm so. down. <laughs> thank All you right. for inviting me and thanks for doing this podcast so people can hear more and learn more yeah. about somatic experiencing sacred work i think you're the one that introduced me to that phrase so thank you Thanks for listening to the Sneaky Powerful Podcast. If you'd like more information about somatic experiencing, you can look them up online at traumahealing.org. And if you'd like more information about the podcast, you can go to sneakypowerful.com. We appreciate any feedback, reviews, stars that you might want to give us and look forward to sharing our next interview with you. See you then. Thank you.